Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Here's a number you may not have heard. According to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, one in five people in North America do not know anyone who says they are a Christian. 20% of all people in North America do not know anyone who even claims We're not talking about the genuineness of their faith, but anyone who even claims to be a Christian. And most of these people live in the United States. When asked in 2004 to name his favorite book of the New Testament, you remember what presidential candidate Howard Dean answered? New Testament book. He said, Job. Most people don't know the word of God in our country today. Do you remember Obama's press secretary, Jay Carney, in 2011 at a briefing? Carney told the press, I believe the phrase from the Bible is, the Lord helps those who help themselves. White House later issued a correction that says, this common phrase does not appear in the Bible. That's not a position you want to be in right there. Sometimes Christians don't do much better, though. Just a few of the common expressions you hear in the church that are not in the Bible. God doesn't give you more than you can handle? Kind of. Kind of. That's a misquote of 1 Corinthians 10.13, which says you will not be tempted beyond what you can bear. See, that's a big difference, isn't it? Money is the root of all evil? Leaves out an important word. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not money that is the root of evil. The love of money is a root Cleanliness is next to godliness. Sorry, mothers. Not in the Bible. It was John Wesley in the 18th century that put that in one of his sermons, and it caught on. God don't like ugly. (laughs) I've never heard that before until I saw this list. Many people think that's in the Bible, I guess, because enough moms have told their children to stop acting ugly. I never heard that. I like this one, though. Prosperity teacher Leroy Thompson, he made popular the phrase, money cometh to me now. (laughs) Now his, his conferences made a lot of people think this is in the Bible, but unfortunately, guys, it's not. Kenneth Copeland, he got in on the action. He picked up on the phrase and then he passed it on. But you can quote it as much as you want. It's not going to attract unexpected income. This morning, I want to address another issue, another correction that is not in the Bible, even though most of the church today thinks it is. And it deals with confession in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not my intention to attack, but it is my intention to confront one of the most misunderstood subjects today when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, a majority of gospel tracts get this wrong today. Churches are getting this wrong Seminaries are getting this wrong. I know in my 
life, there was a time where I had to wrestle with this in my own faith. There was a time where I had to do that. And so my challenge to you this morning is if you've always seen it one way, what we're looking at, I want you to wrestle with it. It's like the old story about Albert Einstein at a dinner party when his young neighbor asked him what he did for a profession. And Einstein said that I devote myself to the study of physics. And the young girl looked at him astonished. And she said, you mean you study physics at your age? How's that possible? I finished mine a year ago. And part of what made Einstein great, what made him so great, was that he was a lifelong learner. But too many Christians are acting like that young girl today, thinking that they can learn just a little bit of the Bible, get a little bit of a flavor of it, and then move on. See, I want you to hear me carefully. I don't care if you don't know much about the Bible if you have a desire to grow. But I do care. I do care if you don't know much about the Bible and don't want to grow. And I do care if you think you have all the answers and don't want to learn because you've read some commentaries along the way. You need to start with this. Here's where everyone in this room needs to start. It doesn't matter what you think the Bible says. It doesn't matter what I think the Bible says. Words have meaning. Words have meaning. You're going to hear me say this about 10 times this morning. Words have meaning. God communicated to us with words. And each passage of Scripture, and you need to learn this principle, each passage of Scripture can only have one correct meaning. And so we look to the words of Scripture, not the commentaries. We look to the context of Scripture. And we look for God's intended meaning. Do you believe, ask yourself, do you believe God meant for his people to understand his word? See, I hope so. Or do you believe God has multiple meanings in each text and the truth is whatever you think it says or how it makes you feel today? There's no expert here in this room, myself included. But there's a book before us written by the expert with words. One intended meaning by the author, God. And I believe he intends us to see it. Now we're going to spend the bulk of our time in Romans 10 this morning. And it's a tough text to deal with on a Sunday morning. But I first want to stop off at Matthew 10. And I want you to notice the words of Christ starting in verse 32. He says, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven but whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, it is said often that this refers to confessing Christ as Lord in order to receive eternal life. But it can't be. It can't be because it's not the context. It's not the subject. If you go back to the beginning of the chapter, Jesus was sending out the disciples with the message that the Messiah had come. The kingdom of heaven was at hand. The kingdom of the Messiah was at hand if, if Israel would have received her king. In verse 22, the Lord spoke of persecution. He talks about enduring to the end and being saved, saved. But he wasn't talking about the gospel. He wasn't even talking about the gospel. He was talking to the disciples. He was talking about being delivered, saved, delivered from the persecution. See, this verse is actually about temporal 
deliverance. It is not teaching that you will endure with good works to the end if you are a true believer. That's incorrect teaching. That's not the meaning of the text. See, salvation is by grace through faith alone. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. And you don't have to prove it by doing good works to be a genuine believer. You are a genuine believer if you have faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Difference. Big difference. And you should have good works. But good works do not make you a genuine believer. This is a verse saying those who endure during the tribulation, that's the context, that's what it's talking about, can expect God to deliver them in the end. Notice the words, to the end. A prophetic reference to the end of the seventh week of Daniel, the end of the great tribulation. See, this is actually talking about a rescue of those tribulation saints that endure to the end to it. Persecution is a subject before verse 22 and after all the way up until verse 32, where he speaks of confessing Christ before men. And if this was about eternal life, why would we have to wait? Why would we have to wait for God the Son to confess us before the Father to find out if we have eternal life? That don't make sense. Because the Bible says that eternal life is a present reality, that assurance that we can have right now in Christ is a reality. Confessing Christ before others is not a part of receiving eternal life, because if it is, then salvation is now by works. Read John 12, 42 with me. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, keyword believed, but because of the Pharisees, they did not, what, confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men, more than the praise of God. Fear gave in is all it's saying, and they failed to confess Christ, but it says directly they believed. Now, we said words have meaning, right? We said this. We said words have meaning, and the word believed means they had faith. That's what it means. They put their trust in him. That is what the Greek word means. Matthew 10, 32 and 33 is about rewards and a loss of rewards for believers at the judgment seat of Christ. It's about receiving praise before the Father or being denied rewards before the Father. And we know this is the correct interpretation because notice what Christ said down in verse 41 and 42 and look for the word rewards. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Christ is talking about rewards, not about salvation. Which is also the subject over in 2 Timothy, which is the second passage that we need to look at because 2 Timothy 2.12 is another text that is always ripped out of context. It says this, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Now, again, 2 Timothy 2.12 is not about eternal salvation and proving you are a true believer or not. It cannot be the context is all about the right to reign with Christ. Paul had just stated in chapter 1 of the letter that he was certain, absolutely certain about his salvation. 
He already said, you know the hymn that's based on this text. He already said, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. So if Paul is certain about his eternal salvation, then why would he include himself here in chapter 2 by saying, if we endure? He knew he would endure to eternal salvation. See, Paul was certain about this. He was certain God would keep him. He knew his eternal security in Christ. Paul was talking about, in the later chapter here, about being willing to suffer for the gospel of Christ. Paul is just saying this. If we deny Christ now, he'll deny us the right to rule and reign with him in the future. But we are still secure in Christ. And even if we are weak in the faith, or as Paul says it, notice the next verse. He says, if we are faithless, weak in the faith, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. See, he can't deny himself. Even if we're weak in the faith, even if we don't trust when a storm of life hits, because they will hit, God is still faithful, Christian, because we are part of the family of God, and God cannot deny himself. Here's a place I want to go sometime. This is America's first amusement park. In December of 2016, an amusement park ride there at Knott's Berry Farm became stuck. I hate that. That scares me. It got stuck at a height of 148 feet in the air. Now, 20 people were on this ride, including seven children. And the firefighters tried to get a ladder. They tried to reach them by using a massive ladder, but it was too short. That's how that works. So fire crews had no choice. They had absolutely no choice. They would have to lower each passenger from the air, 148 feet, harnessed to a single rope. Now, Fire Captain Larry Kurtz said this, it sounds scary, but we have very strong ropes (laughs) that have 9,000 pounds of breaking strength on them. Now, he was, what was he doing? He was building the faith of those who were trapped, giving them information to trust in that would calm their fears. It was up to each person to believe and place their trust in the firefighter. Now let's focus on one of those young people that was on the ride, and let's just say his name was Kurt. He's seven years old. He's old enough to feel scared as he looks at the ground 148 feet down. Don't look down. He always looked down. Don't say that. It would save us all some trouble. The firefighter looks Kurt in his eyes, and with a steadying voice, he says, Trust me, Kurt, I won't let you go. Your life is very precious to me, and I will have you down before you know it. So Kurt listens to him and thinks about that very strong rope. He thinks about that. He believes, has faith, has trust in the firefighter. That if he follows his lead, that man is going to get him safely down. It's the belief, faith, trust in the right object that will get Kurt to safety. Hear this carefully. Lordship salvation teaches something different. It's teaching a different gospel. Let's say now the firefighter is Christ. And the rope down is a metaphor for the cross. Under lordship salvation, it is no longer just about trusting the rope or trusting the firefighter. It also is now about committing or confessing. 
that when Kurt gets down to the ground, he's going to live like a respectable child that is worthy of a friendship with the firefighter. What saved him? Not the confession that he was going to live a worthy life of being a friend of the firefighter. Not the promise to live good after. It was the simple childlike faith in the rope. See, here's why this is important. The gospel of Jesus Christ is being redefined to no longer be good news because it now becomes an announcement of some sort of test that we have to pass other than what it is, salvation by faith through grace. So before we approach Romans 10, we set the background in the context because everything in Romans leads up to this. Everything before it helps us to understand God's original intended meaning. And if you miss this context, you will miss God's intended point in the book of Romans. In Romans 9.27, Paul quoted from Isaiah and said that a remnant of Israel will be saved or delivered. Now we look at that word saved and in our English translations, we think he's got to just be talking about eternal life. But in Isaiah 10, where Paul is specifically pulling this from, the text is very clear, very specific in the original context and meaning, which does not change. It says that a remnant of them will return. A remnant of them will return. The northern tribes of Israel is the context, would be wiped out by Assyria, but a remnant of these tribes will return to the land to go into the kingdom of Christ that starts at the second coming of Christ. Now this impacts how Paul is talking about salvation in Romans 9, 10, and 11. The word of God is defining the meaning for us. So here's point one that you need to know. Paul quotes Isaiah 10.22 and teaches us that salvation in Romans 9.27, deliverance. You see the word salvation in the book of Romans, think deliverance. Deliverance is about a remnant of the tribes of Israel returning to the land to enter in the kingdom of Christ when? At his second coming. Now this matters because in the book of Romans, when Paul talks about salvation, it is very oversimplistic to say that he's just talking about eternal life. And in Romans, if you're reading this in Greek, you're looking at the Greek word soteria, or the verbal form of this word sozo, and they just mean this, deliverance. In chapters 2 through 4, Paul is talking about justification. He's talking about eternal life. And he never uses those words there. But instead, Paul talks about righteousness. Righteousness. This is the second point that we as Christians need to understand. That a wise student of Romans looks at the wording and asks the question, deliverance from what? Deliverance from what? And the answer is God's wrath. Now, God's wrath, let's speak about that. See, Romans 1.18 and Romans 5.9 through 10 show that God's wrath is presently, presently on those who suppress the truth. Wrath in Romans is about God manifesting his wrath in this life, here and now. Temporal wrath is what Paul is talking about, not eternal punishment. It leads us to a third observation that Romans, in Romans, wrath is temporal, 
wrath and not eternal punishment. And fourth, when Paul does talk about eternal life in Romans, he uses very specific wording. He uses specific terms, justification, righteousness. That's how he talks about eternal life in the book of Romans, justification and righteousness for eternal life. And then in chapter 10, starting in verse 6, Paul quoted from Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 through 14, a specific passage that talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ and the nation of Israel going into the land when God will circumcise their hearts to love the Lord so they can live in perfect obedience. And the reference to living in the original meaning and context is not a reference to eternal life. Don't just see the word living and think it's referring to eternal life. That's not what it's about. But it's about living an abundant life centered in Christ in perfect obedience in his kingdom. And if you walk through Deuteronomy 30, you see it plainly. It describes, it goes through it, it lists it out what this life is going to look like. That in Israel they will have no enemies. And the people of Israel will live in perfect obedience. They'll be productive in the land. And so here's all this to say that by the time we get to our text in Romans, you must understand that two times in the immediate context, Paul has already quoted two passages that refer to the second coming of Christ. So just based on that, what do you think Paul's talking about? Second coming of Christ. Two passages that directly refer to the nation of Israel returning to the full boundaries of their land. What do you think Paul's talking about? The second coming of Christ. This is the subject of Romans 10. This is the context. This is what it's about. Israel will come into the full possession of her land promised to her thousands of years ago. And remember that when Paul was talking about mouths and hearts, he was again pulling it from Deuteronomy, saying their heart attitude must not reflect the mindset of unbelieving Israel. So here comes longest introduction ever. But here comes the most misunderstood words in the entire Bible, simply because we as Christians don't take the time, and sometimes we don't have the time, but we don't take the time to look at the original context of each passage that is quoted by Paul, and simply because we don't look deeper than our English translations to look at the wording used by God. God didn't write in English. Verses 9 and 10, read this, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You can't take this text and just rip it out of all the context that comes before. You cannot divorce it from the context, from the wording of Deuteronomy 30, which Paul had just quoted. Because if you do, you're going to misunderstand Romans. Righteousness in Romans can refer to justification and our position in Christ, or it can refer to a quality of life, living an abundant life centered in walking with God in practical righteousness. Or another way to say it would be living out our condition, not our position in Christ. See, the context in Romans 10 is about this practical righteousness. Salvation is deliverance from the wrath of God, and justification is about eternal life in Romans and in verse 9, if verse 9, here comes some of your proof. If you're trying to figure this out, here comes some of the proof. And then we're going to build to why this is all so important in a minute. 
if verse 9 was only about a gospel invitation, you would absolutely have to confess Jesus Christ, not just in your heart, but audibly for salvation. Even though this would be the only verse in the entire New Testament to teach this. And even though we have 160 verses in the New Testament that salvation is only by simple childlike faith. If you take verse 9 as only about the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you better be prepared to say that people have to confess salvation out loud. That an inner prayer of the heart is not enough because these words are clearly talking about an audible confession. If you equate confession and believing in this text as both referring to eternal salvation, be prepared to teach audible confession of Jesus Christ. He mentions confession with the mouth, not just once, but two times. So if this was only about salvation for eternal life, any inner expression of the heart in prayer conveying faith would not even save you. It wouldn't save you if that's your teaching. Paul explicitly stated confession is with the mouth and words. Words have meaning. A key observation that needs to be made is that in verse 9, Paul starts with confession first. Then in verse 10, he starts with a conjunction and puts the order of what he's talking about in the right order. So we have to say that verses 9 and 10 are, are the same subject. And we have to say that verses 6, 7, and 8 are all related and all connected which Paul has been talking about living an abundant life centered in the practical righteousness of God. Again, we're going to bring up Romans 5, verses 9 through 10. And I want you to notice, what does he say? Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be, what? Saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, here's an interesting thought. Paul considered the Christians at Rome, the Christians, the believers at Rome, he considered them justified by his blood, reconciled to God, obviously believers in Jesus Christ, but yet these Christians were somehow not saved. That's interesting. Paul wrote, we shall be saved from wrath through him, and we shall be saved by his life. And it goes back to Romans 1.18, that the wrath these Christians were to be saved from is the wrath of God. Where it says, Paul wrote this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1 is God's wrath by giving men over to the control of their sin nature. See, God doesn't have to do that much. He just gives men over to the control of their sin nature. And the wrath in Romans 5 is not a reference to the final salvation from the presence of sin, but in its context of chapter 6, salvation, deliverance from the power, from the power of sin. So the point of Romans 5 is that since God's love and death of Christ have brought us justification, then as a result of that love, we can also expect salvation from God's wrath. But if you want to experience this truth in your life, Christian, if you want to experience this as a believer in Christ, the believer must live out the truth of Romans 6. That's why chapter 6 comes after chapter 5. 
where Paul teaches the believer to live out the grace of God. See, what Paul teaches is that the believer must die to sin and present himself to God as an instrument of God's righteousness. And when Paul refers to salvation in Romans 10, he's speaking of being delivered from the power of the sin nature. Romans 10 is actually about sanctification and about eschatology. It's about the end times. And Paul wanted Israel to be delivered from this future judgment of God. When Israel receives new life in Christ, with the Spirit of God living in them, the Hebrew people will obey the Lord like they've never done before. And so we come back to Romans 10, and we find ourselves asking, what does it mean to confess with the mouth the Lord Jesus? Now the answer is found in the second half of verse 10. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Now skip ahead to verse 13 with me. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you compare verse 10 with verse 13, you have to say that confession is the same thing in Romans 10 as calling upon the name of the Lord. They are the same. In Romans 10, salvation is being delivered from the power of the sin nature. But if you track down in the word of God, and it's not that hard to do, if you track down in the word of God this idea of calling on the name of the Lord in the New Testament, you discover all throughout in Acts 7, Acts 9, Acts 21, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 2 Timothy 2.22, that to call upon the name of the Lord in the New Testament is what? It's publicly identifying with or worshiping the Lord. It's worship of the Lord. And that's part of the understanding in Romans 10. Because public worship of the Lord Jesus is an important part of being delivered from the power of the sin nature. So go back to verses 9 and 10 with me. And understand that Paul uses the terms mouth and heart to parallel the Old Testament text that he just quoted in verse 8. But Paul's point in verse 9, is that for the nation of Israel to be delivered from the wrath of God, first, the people need to be justified. Israel, people there, need to be justified before they're delivered from wrath. And that's what Paul meant in the second part of the verse, where he says, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's how they'll be justified. And secondly, if the nation is to be delivered from the wrath of God, what do they need to do? What will they need to do? Well, the New Testament is abundantly clear. They'll need to confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus. And verse 10 restates the same teaching in the proper order. Now, the reason why we're taking so much time on a Sunday morning to go through all of this is because those that teach lordship salvation are teaching that this is all about individual salvation to eternal life. And they use this verse, they use this passage to teach confession as part of eternal salvation. I want you to hear me carefully. Our doctrine here as a church is that there is a difference between your position in Christ as a believer and your condition in Christ. Simply meaning your condition might not always match in practice who Christ has made you to be as a child of God. You might not live up to your identity in Christ perfectly. In fact, you won't. You won't. Paul admitted this in his own life in the book of Romans. But listen to how Lordship Salvation teaches this. Again, I'm not here to attack these men, but when you put out public doctrine, 
It is public, and it's influencing people. From his commentary on these verses in Romans 10, John MacArthur says this. Paul is speaking of the deep, personal, abiding conviction that without any reservation or qualification, without any reservation or qualification, no doubt, in your mind, will confess Jesus as Lord, that is, will confess that Jesus is the believer's own sovereign ruling Lord, careful words, we're going to look at that in a minute, in whom alone he trusts for salvation and, notice this, to whom he submits. Now, what does he mean? See, lordship salvation teaches that you have to trust and submit to the lordship of Christ in order to be saved. That Jesus is not just Lord, that is who he is, of course, but that he is the ruling Lord of your life and that you're now submitting to him in how you live out your life. Remember the illustration of the firefighter? That's making a promise to the firefighter rather than simple trust in him and the rope. And it's also confusing the gospel with growing in the faith. It's confusing justification with sanctification and blending it all into one big pot. And it's also works. It's also works, which is why just a little bit before this in his commentary, John MacArthur actually says that at salvation, the believer is both justified, declared righteous, and, keyword, made righteous. Lordship salvation includes the idea of trusting, repenting of sins, and submission to the Lordship of Christ, but that is not the purpose of this text. See, the problem is men are taking the lens of Reformed theology, the lens of Reformed theology, and looking at the Scriptures through them, much like I'm looking through my glasses, instead of letting the Word of God speak for itself. So they speak doublespeak, saying that we are saved by faith alone, yes, but that faith will never be alone. Meaning there must be good works, not should be good works, as the word of God says. There must be, they say. And so what do they do in order to cross that bridge in their minds, knowing that it is impossible to submit to Christ before you're saved? They come up with this idea that regeneration precedes faith. No, you cannot show me one verse in the scriptures not one verse in the Bible that teaches this, that regeneration comes before faith. But I can show you plenty of verses where the New Testament says, look to Jesus by faith and live, not live and then have faith. This idea they have is why the Reformation Study Bible teaches on page 1664 that infants can even be born again. I want you to think that through. Infants can be born again. And when asked about it, the editor, R.C. Sproul, doubled down and said this. An infant's faith may not come until years after God has worked by his Holy Spirit to regenerate him or her. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ I find in my Bible. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, I want you guys to understand that there is a battle for the truth of the gospel that is going on, that is exploding not just in this church. It's not really a battle here, but throughout the church. And so I'm telling you that if you believe, and I want you to hear me, I'm telling you that if you believe 
Saving faith is the belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died and rose again to pay one's personal penalty for sin and the one who gives eternal life to all who trust Him and Him alone for it. If you believe this, you are absolutely welcome here. If you are interested in learning about this gospel, you are welcome here. If you are confused about the gospel and want to learn and grow in your understanding, you're welcome here. But, here comes the but. If you believe works are a part of the gospel, if you believe lordship salvation and want to teach it here or spread it here and undermine what we are teaching as a church by whispering it to others, I'm going to tell you this, that you're barking up the wrong tree and you're in the wrong church. That's not our doctrine. And I'm going to stand on that. That's not our doctrine. And so don't try to spread it here. The gospel of Jesus Christ is everything to me. And on this I stand because I know what God's grace did in my life. I know it changed me. It made me a new creation in Christ. And the believers in this room that are gathered who want a church where we can learn about the grace of God as described in the word of God are something that I am charged with before God to protect. And so protect them, I will. Because if we can't stand for the gospel, I'm done. Then I'm out. And then what are we doing here? These verses in Romans are not teaching. Confession, works, submission, making a promise to the firefighter in order to receive eternal life. Is Jesus Christ Lord? Of course. And a new convert must believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and rose again in order to receive eternal life. But that is not the same as saying that you will acknowledge the Lord Jesus or submit to the Lord Jesus at the core of your heart in your life and how you live in order to receive eternal life. Does the Holy Spirit convict the heart of the new convert of their sin? Of course. But that is not the same as Lordship Salvation that teaches that if there's not submission, commitment, and surrender to Christ, then there's not faith in Christ. I'm going to get more people mad at me, but here we go. I've heard Ray Comfort say that you must. I want you to hear his list. And I, just to be clear, I think he's a nice man. I think he's won more people to Christ than I'll ever, ever lead to Christ. But I've heard him say many times that you must turn from sin, turn to God. Hear this next part. Desire to have nothing to do with sin. Surrender your life to the one who can save you. And he says often, if you confess your sins, forsake your sins, and repent and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord, then you can be saved. Well, who can do that? No one can forsake all your sins. No one can completely remove the desire for sin, not in this lifetime. I still like sin. Not an accurate gospel. And at least 90% of all gospel tracts that I see contain these wrong ideas. And guys, these things matter. These things matter. These verses in Romans are not teaching that individuals must make Jesus the Lord of their life over every single area by committing to him in order to receive eternal life. Romans 10 is about the future deliverance for the nation of Israel. Well, how do we know that, Mark? Well, verse 13 is about to tell us, but first comes verses 11 and 12. We'll go through them quickly. 
It says, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, and for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Now, these chapters are mostly about Israel, Israel, Israel. And Paul makes sure everyone understands there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. And then he quotes Isaiah 28, verse 16. Whoever believes on him will not, not be put to shame. And Paul just mentioned this back in chapter 9, verse 33. This was Paul quoting from Isaiah 28, verse 16. Where he says, as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Meaning what? Christ would be a stumbling block to the Jews. And if you go back and look at the context of Isaiah, this was written when Jerusalem was trusting in other gods to protect them from the Assyrian invasion. See, Paul was quoting this verse to encourage believers to turn to God for help, just as the nation of Israel will need to turn to God in faith during the tribulation. And then verse 13 in Romans, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now we read this and we just say it's a gospel invitation for today. Or is it something else? Well, this is about the future deliverance for the nation of Israel. How do we know? We know this because Paul is quoting directly from Joel 2.32. And so whatever Paul means here is what Paul is taking directly from Joel. So let's read Joel 2. I know it's a novel thought, but let's read Joel 2. It says, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. As the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Now, what is this talking about? Well, the Hebrew word for saved here, where it means shall be saved, literally means flee to safety. That's what it means. Flee to safety. A remnant of the nation of Israel will come to know Christ by faith during the tribulation. And this remnant will confess or call on the name of the Lord and be delivered into the kingdom. And scripture only has one intended meaning. We've said this. And this is God's intended meaning of what Paul is directly quoting in the book of Romans. Now, Jesus himself, he predicted this in Matthew 23 when he said first in verses 37 and 39, he said, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the people of Israel will call in the name of the Lord and be delivered into the messianic kingdom. This will be after they as individuals have placed their faith in Christ for eternal salvation. And so again, Joel 2.32 must be kept in its proper context. Go back to verses 30 and 31 in Joel and we can start to see the true meaning of this. It should be obvious that the subject matter is the day of the Lord where it says, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Boy, that seems like that's the context, doesn't it? In verse 32, Joel was referring to physical deliverance from the divine judgment of God that will be displayed during the tribulation. When will this take place? This will take place at the second coming of Christ. And so it's difficult to see how Paul could take such a passage like that that's talking about deliverance of Israel in the second coming of Christ to use as a passage that refers to individual salvation that doesn't make sense. It's not the subject, and we can prove it. By looking at Romans 10, verse 14, where he says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So this question, 
How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? This demonstrates, hear it carefully, this demonstrates for us that believing in Christ and calling on Christ in Romans 10 are two different actions. They're two different actions. Do you see that? Because if they're not, then we have to be consistent at least and say that hearing is the same as believing in the next sentence. And of course, that can't be true. And so the important question is, when will the nation of Israel place their faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah? And the scriptures teach that this is the purpose of the tribulation, especially the second half. And you can look to Jeremiah 30, Ezekiel 20, and Ezekiel 22, Daniel 9, Zechariah 13, Revelation 7, and the witnesses of the 144,000, Revelation 11 with the two witnesses. Zechariah 14 instructs us about the physical return of Christ at the end of the seven years of the tribulation. And what do we read? We read of the Lord doing battle with his enemies and splitting the Mount of Olives directly in two. And there will be no time on that day for the people of Israel to all of a sudden run in panic and place their faith in Jesus at his return. There'll be a time of judgment upon those who do not believe. Those who have already believed coming to faith during the tribulation, at that time they will call upon the name of the Lord, worship him, confess him, at his physical return. I offer up Ezekiel 20, starting with verse 34. It says, I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you, talking to Israel, out of the countries where you scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out, and I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will plead my case with you face to face. Just as I pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I'll plead my case with you, says the Lord God. And the context of the next verse tells us that the most natural understanding of this text is the second coming of Christ, when God is judging the remnant of Israel after the second coming, but before he establishes his literal, physical kingdom on earth. So watch the next verses, starting in verse 37. He says, I will make you pass under the rod and I'll bring you into the bond of covenant. I will purge the rebels from among you. Sounds like he's getting rid of the unbelievers. And those who transgress against me, I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. See, this will be a time of judgment for Israel. Just as Matthew 25 lists out the sheep and goat judgments for the nations after the second coming and before the kingdom of Christ. Ezekiel 20 lists out the judgment in the wilderness for the nation of Israel. Israel. And notice how verse 38 ends. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Now that's the language of the new covenant, isn't it? The new covenant which will not be fulfilled until after the second coming. And the picture given is of a shepherd holding out his rod and forcing the sheep to pass under its single file for counting, letting them enter into the fold, a place of protection. And notice verse 37, I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And the new covenant is, of course, found over in Jeremiah 31. Or verse 33, we'll just read verse 33, where it tells us, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
See, that's the idea back in Ezekiel 20, verse 37. God took Israel out of the wilderness before, and what did he do? He gave them the Mosaic Covenant. He gave them a conditional covenant. He gave them a conditional covenant that was intended to teach them to have, how to have fellowship with him. This time, he's going to change it up a bit. He's going to give them an unconditional covenant, the new covenant that will make it possible to be in perfect fellowship with the Savior. He will put his spirit in them and make them walk in perfect obedience. And that's the language of Ezekiel 20. God took the people into the wilderness before. He's going to do it again. And as the sheep pass under the rod of the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, those who do not belong to him, unbelieving Israelites who transgress against God will be removed. God will allow them into the land. If they don't have faith, they will be removed. God will not allow the rebels to enter into his land. Before the millennium, Israel will be forced to stand before the Lord for judgment. Israel will worship the Lord in obedience during the millennium once the rebels are purged. And then watch verse 42 in Ezekiel. It confirms this time about the new covenant. When the land covenant of God is fulfilled and Israel is given her land, it says, then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I bring you into the land of Israel, into the country for which I raised my hand in an oath to give to your fathers. See, Zechariah 13 teaches us that millions, millions of Israelites, they will die during the tribulation. They will be killed during the tribulation, but that is not the end of the purging of the rebels. God will take the remnant that is left out into the wilderness to sift, to judge, to test. And those with faith from Israel will be allowed into the land. They will confess Christ on that day. The point of Romans 10, they will confess Christ on that day and worship him. This is a subject Paul is referencing in Romans 10 by quoting from Joel 2. William McKay, he had a great testimony about how God completely rewrote the story of his life. In the mid-1800s, as a teenager in Scotland, William left home to go to college, and his mother was greatly concerned about his spiritual life. She gave him a Bible and wrote William's name in it, but her son discovered exactly what I discovered in college the first time around before I went to Moody Bible Institute. Her son, Sue, discovered that college life was a time of endless parties. And once William ran out of money for whiskey, he decided that he had to sell anything he could, and he sold his Bible. By God's grace, he made it through college. It's amazing anybody makes it through college. He made it through college and became a doctor in a large hospital. But William was still hard-hearted toward God. Listen to what he later wrote in his life. He said, My dear mother had been a godly woman, quite often telling me of the Savior. And many times I'd seen her wrestling in prayer for my salvation. But nothing had made a deep impression on me. The older I grew, the more wicked I became. For the God of my mother, I did not care in the least. I said the same thing as a young man. For the God of my mother, I did not care in the least, but rather sought by all means to drive him out of my thoughts. Then one day, a seriously injured laborer was brought into the hospital. 
He had fallen from a ladder. The case was hopeless. All we could do was ease the pains of the unfortunate man. He was fully conscious. He was alone in the world. And he also requested that his landlady send him the book. I went to see him on my visits. And what struck me the most was the quiet, almost happy expression, which was constantly on his face. See, I knew he was a Christian, but I didn't care to talk to him about such matters. And after a week of suffering, this man died. What shall we do with this? Asked the nurse, holding up a book, holding up a book in her hand. What kind of book is it? I asked. The Bible of the poor man. As long as he was able to read it, he did so. I took the Bible and could I trust my eyes? It was my own. It was my own Bible. My name was still in it, written in my mother's hand. I took the Bible to my room. It had been used frequently. Many pages were loose. Others were torn. Almost every page gave evidence that it had been read often and many places were underlined. You see, that's just cheating at that point. That's just cheating. Get to the good parts. With a deep sense of shame, I looked upon the book, the precious book. It had given much comfort and refreshment to the dying man in his last hours. It had guided him into eternal life so that he'd been able to die in peace and happiness. And this book, the last gift of my mother, I had actually sold for a ridiculous price. Several hours later, William McKay received Christ as his savior. He later became a preacher. He wrote the hymn we have sung and I think are about to sing. We praise thee, O God, for the son of thy love, for Jesus who died and is now gone above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. Here's what I'm telling you. God does an amazing work in our salvation. He can use a Bible that we sold long ago. He can use a donkey. He can also use Romans 10 to lead people to faith. Because God can use a crooked stick and a verse out of context to hit a home run. But I don't want to use a crooked stick. I don't. I want to get it right because God wants us to get it right. And I don't want to be put in this position of being used to lead someone to faith in Christ with Romans 10 and then have to come back to them later and explain to them that I lied, that Romans 10 isn't really about the gospel. It's about Hebrew believers being delivered from the wrath of God at the end of the tribulation. That's why they're going to confess him, because they'll worship him. Work toward clarity in your own understanding of the gospel of Christ. You have that responsibility as a Christian. And be thankful that despite all the confusion that has been brought about by Lordship's salvation, be thankful that God's still working. God is still working, still bringing people to faith, and he is still clear in his word of what we must do to be saved. In fact, he wrote it down 160 times. Salvation is by faith through grace. And so we close this morning by echoing the words of David when he said in Psalm 28, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song, I will praise him. 
Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.